Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Jillian Hayes, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. Today, we'll be continuing in our dosing consult series. This class of episodes was kicked off with our May 2022 episode on ceftriaxone dosing. And if you haven't listened to that episode already, I highly encourage you to do so. I've already referred a handful of folks to this episode, and it has sparked continued conversation on what dose of ceftriaxone we should be using for our patients. Today's episode is just as exciting with the spotlight shifted to linazolid with a specific focus on therapeutic drug monitoring or TDM. Linazolid TDM has been on the mind of the pubs and pods sector of SIDP as our upcoming November installment of Bench to Bedside with Contagion Live will also focus on linazolid TDM. So be sure to keep an eye out on our partnership page, which will be linked in the show notes for you. We have the gift of being joined by two excellent guests to break down this topic for us. I'm sincerely honored to be hosting our two panelists today, Drs. Ryan Krass and Amit Pai. Starting with Ryan, Dr. Ryan Krass is the Director of Pharmacometrics with Ann Arbor Pharmacometrics Group, or A2PG, a pharmacometrics and clinical pharmacology consulting firm, which recently joined Amador Bioscience. In this role, he works with sponsors of investigational and registered drugs to develop and apply models quantifying drug pharmacokinetics and exposure response to inform efficient drug development decision-making. He earned his PharmD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, completed a PGY-1 and PGY-2 ID residencies at the University of Kentucky, and completed a Clinical Pharmacology Translational Sciences Fellowship at the University of Michigan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for the introduction, Jillian. Hello, everyone. Very excited to be here on Breakpoint. All right. And next is Dr. Amit Pai. He is a professor and chair of clinical pharmacy and deputy director of the Pharmacokinetics Core Laboratory at the University of Michigan. His research focus is optimal drug dosing in specific populations such as obesity and patients with abnormal kidney function. He earned his PharmD from the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio, Texas, completed a pharmacy practice residency at Bassett Healthcare in Cooperstown, New York, and an infectious diseases pharmacokinetics fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Amit, we're thrilled to have you join us today. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jillian. So happy to be here today. All right. So in order to best break down this topic for our listeners, we've decided to take a journalistic approach with our investigation into linazolid TDM. Today's episode will aim to answer the who, what, when, where, why, and how, or five W's and one H of linazolid TDM. Our listeners likely have some degree of familiarity with linazolid, but to refresh our memories and adequately frame our discussion today, Ryan, do you mind kicking us off with the what? What pertinent principles of linazolid should we keep top of mind during our time together? Happy to do so, Jillian. I'll try to be brief with setting the stage, but um, as anyone that's written a PK focused manuscript uh, with me knows I'm not necessarily known for my brevity in terms of background. So um, I thought I would start with just kind of summarizing some of the key um, properties about linazolid, starting with you know mechanism of action, which is likely known to everyone. Um, go through some of its PK properties and the things that make it unique from a PK standpoint, and then just discuss some of its PKPD properties um, to help frame our discussion, which will be focused on you know PK, PKPD, and therapeutic drug monitoring. So linazolid is one of our few fully synthetic uh, antibiotics, and it works by inhibiting uh, bacterial protein synthesis. For 
PK properties, I'll take the, the ADME framework um, to describe linazolid pharmacokinetics. Starting with absorption, it's probably one of the hallmark properties of linazolid. Uh, it has near complete bioavailability, meaning in most settings, um, oral dosing is just as good as intravenous. Peak concentrations are achieved about one to two hours um, after oral doses, so pretty rapidly absorbed as well. In terms of distribution, uh, linazolid has relatively low protein binding, about 30%, um, which is relevant when thinking about our um, PKPD indices and our clinical monitoring um, therapeutic drug monitoring concentrations, and that really three in total drug are going to give us pretty similar um, indices overall. It distributes well into most tissues in the body with volumes of distribution approximating total body water, 40 to 50 liters or so in adults. Um, the metabolism of linazolid uh, is still somewhat of a mystery. It, it's broken down into two major metabolites. Both of those are inactive against bacteria, um, although some hypothesize they may have a role in uh, toxicity. It has two pathways for the metabolism. Um, Terms the lactam and lactone pathways, one of which is presumed to be enzymatic, and the other was presumed to be non-enzymatic, at least in the at the time of the initial um, NDA submission. In terms of elimination, as already highlighted, it is um, metabolized with, with all of the metabolites um, primarily eliminated in the urine. Parent linazolid itself is actually eliminated about 30 to 40 percent of the dose as unchanged drug. Um, so there, there is a known um, impact of renal elimination on the, the PK of linazolid. Thinking as, as a pharmacometrician and focusing in POP-PK, I wanted to also just briefly summarize some of the information that we've gained in the literature from POP-PK for linazolid. The original POP-PK model uh, that was developed from Compassionate Use Program data um, by Allison Meager, Alan Forrest, and colleagues, and uh, published in AAC in 2003, was a two-compartment model with mixed linear, nonlinear elimination. I think this is something that is, is maybe still in debate in terms of whether we can treat linazolid as a linear elimination drug, like most of our TDM antibiotics, or if it has a nonlinear um, mechalosmetin component to clearance. Um, and they also identified creatinine clearance, interestingly, as the only significant covariate of linazolid and, um, elimination. And so more recently, uh, actually this year, there's been a review of POP-PK models by Bandin Bilar and colleagues in clinical pharmacokinetics. And I, I really applaud any author who's willing to do a review of POP-PK models because it's almost, in my opinion, an unreviewable uh, method. But you'll see that across the literature that linazolid is, is fit with a mix of one compartment and two compartment models, um, very similar to what you see for other drugs um, that we do TDM for. So things like uh, vancomycin uh, is a good example. Really, it's likely owing to sampling, where if you have more sparse um, clinically focused sampling, you're likely to fit a one compartment, where the drug probably follows two compartment disposition. Most of these models found linear elimination, but again, that could be related to um, the sampling schema. Like many of our um, antibiotics, body size um, and renal function appear to be the most common factors associated with linazolid exposure. Um, and the variability between individuals is, is pretty modest for, for clearance and volume, uh, about 30 to 40%. And so I think that is a, a pretty good background on the PK parts um, of linazolid. Thinking more towards the PKPD, the initial neutropenic uh, mouse dye models suggested that linazolid was a time-dependent 
um, antibiotics. So the target um, at the time of the initial filing was a 40% time above MIC. More recent mirroring models, as well as some as data from patients, have have found primarily an AUC to MIC um, type exposure for for PKPD. And so the targets there range anywhere from 80 to 100 um, AUC to MIC or 50 to 100 in the, the more recent uh, mouse models. And so I think in terms of the, the targets that we want to keep in mind um, moving forward into our discussion of CDM is that 40% time above MIC and then 50 to 100 AUC to MIC. Thanks, Ryan, so much for that awesome introduction. To finish the framing of our talk, Amit, will you share with us the why? Uh, why might a clinician pursue TDM of linezolid? Yeah, I think, I mean, when you're considering, you know, the rationale or to, to pursue TDM, I think there's really five key principles that one needs to consider. You know, the first is when you're thinking of the compound is, does that compound have significant pharmacokinetic variability or not? And I think when you look at a compound like linezolid, uh, with almost 15, 20 years of experience with this compound, and especially institutions that have performed TDM, what you'll see in the literature is that there's a wide variability in trough concentrations for those institutions that do measure linazolate concentrations, something in the order of seeing concentrations less than one milligram to, per liter to 50 milligrams per liter with a standard dose of 600 milligrams every 12 hours. So that's that's a really large uh, variability that's seen. The second principle is, is there a lag between exposure uh, and effect? And I think that's just true intrinsically for antibiotics. We are using a class of compounds where you're treating and you expect to see effects a few days down, down the road. Uh, this is very different from, for example, a blood pressure medication or something for cardiovascular disease like a beta blocker where you can measure that effect with each dose. Uh, and so that lag effect is another rationale for use of TDM. Uh, the third is, is there a relationship between exposure concentrations and safety and effect? And I think with linazolid, there's really clear, clear literature showing that trough concentrations above seven to eight milligram per liter are really related to the myelosuppression of that compound. And there potentially are other target concentrations, especially when that drug is used for other indications that may suggest a lower concentration threshold may actually be predictive of mitochondrial toxicities with that compound. So I think that relationship is pretty well established from a safety perspective. Uh, as Ryan mentioned, you know, AUC to MIC has been one of those targets that have looked at between 50 to 100 and some in the literature have suggested to be 80 to 120 for efficacy. But again, I think when we think about TDM, we often start off with the principles of safety first. Uh, and again, so I think that's really well established for, for this compound. The fourth is, um, you know, is that range uh, of concentrations that we're trying to target narrow, right? As I'd mentioned, you know, the concentrations are really wide with this compound actually when you, when you administer it. And that's been part of the challenge of kind of convincing um, uh, clinicians to to really em employ the use of TDM. But I think where this knowledge is most relevant and where it's seen the most is really toxicities observed with the use of linazolid, most especially against XDR and MDR-TB, uh, specifically when this compound is used for more than 
14, 28, 28 days and beyond, which again, which, which would be the case for TB, it's very clear uh, that there may be a potentially narrow range of, of concentrations that can induce toxicity. So where I had mentioned seeing trough concentrations, for example, of seven or eight being associated with myelosuppression, in the case of TB, um, concentrations above two, micro, two milligram per liter may actually be associated with significant toxicity of that compound when you're using this drug for a two, three, four month or beyond period. And the fifth, which is really the challenge and which is really what holds us back with deploying TDM, uh, unfortunately, is just access to an assay. Uh, and that tends to be the Achilles heel for a lot of compounds. And that's true indeed for, for linazolid as well. Um, so I think, why pursue TDM? I think we pursue TDM, especially for linazolid, to improve the safety of that compound. And there, you know, through this discussion today, I think we'll, it'll be clear that there's definitely a select population that could benefit from, from, this, uh, th from this use. I think Amit gave a, a pretty great uh, summary of kind of the rationale that any clinicians should be considering for whether or not a drug warrants um, TDM. I think highlighted a lot of great points about the experience that we've gained with, with indications that have more long-term use of, of linazolid, um, such as for you know uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis, in which you see more of these long-term toxicities occurring. Um, and I think also made a good point about thinking about preventing toxicity as being our driver for, for TDM, especially in this case. I mean, if we're thinking about um, therapeutic drug monitoring, the goal of keeping patients um, and individual patients in that, that therapeutic index, well, the, the ceiling of our therapeutic index is always going to be the, the toxic concentration, and the floor is always going to be the efficacious. So we're always going to be limited by our um, toxicity rather than um, our efficacy. So if you look at the, the exposures that the patients achieve to linazolid and that, that wide range of trough concentrations that, that Amit gave, um, it, it's very true. And then, but we think about even the bottom end of that range, um, you know, one to two, if you're at a, a trough of around two, if you, you know, multiply that by 12 hour dosing interval and then by another um, two dosing intervals in a day, that gives you a 24-hour AUC of about 50, which is the bottom range of some of our targets. And so for for effective kill. And so I think what we're really, what we need to do is to kind of determine what this what the ceiling is and, and what are the relevant um, toxicities that we're trying to prevent. Because it seems like the bias, at least with linazolid, is not towards underexposure in which patients are unlikely to achieve efficacy, but more towards overexposure where toxicities occur, especially with long-term use. Absolutely. I think that's a great point, especially when we're thinking about, as you both alluded to, the folks that are going to be on this medication potentially for long courses of therapy uh, for some of the infection types and pathogens that we use it for. This is going to be an important thing to keep in mind. So uh, thank you both so much for, for adequately framing our discussion. And without further ado, we'll start to break down some of those patient populations where we feel TDM uh, may benefit the most. So uh, this brings us to the who of our discussion. I don't feel really any need, and after that introduction, I'm sure our listeners won't either, to justify the presence of our panelists on this episode. Uh, however, one factor that led to uh, the both of you being the perfect pair for this subject uh, was the paper titled Reappraisal of Linazolid Dosing in Renal Impairment to Improve Safety, which was published in Antimicrobial Agents in Chemotherapy in 2019. 
Uh, Ryan, could you explain the findings of this study and how patients with renal dysfunction may benefit from linazolid TDM? Absolutely. So I, this study was a, a really uh, interesting one to perform in that it, it really is, is kind of two studies uh, merged into one. And so I'll talk about the two parts of the study and how they kind of fit together to inform the, the uh, TDM recommendations for linazolid. But essentially, I think we kind of covered the, the background of our hypotheses for this study and that essentially there's been enough information from the initial you know, label for linazolid through the clinical use that there's an association between renal impairment and linazolid exposure. And there have been multiple observational studies that have demonstrated a increased risk of myelosuppressive adverse events, primarily thrombocytopenia in patients with renal impairment although these were conducted primarily in um, Asian countries. Additionally, there's been, which is probably not surprising because of the association with renal function and the pharmacokinetics of linazolid, there's an association with renal impairment and higher uh, trough concentration um, or AUC exposure to linazolid. Specifically looking at these trough concentrations of, of greater than seven or eight um, milligrams per liter, which have been associated with greater odds of thrombocytopenia. And so we wanted to take a look at the patients stratified by their renal function and, and who were treated with linazolid at Michigan Medicine and see whether or not we um, observe a higher risk or higher um, hazard for these thrombocytopenia events in these patients. And then in the second part of the study, we um, partnered with some colleagues at the University of Udine in uh, Italy, Federico Pia and Pier Giorgio um, Cajuti, who have been doing therapeutic drug monitoring for linazolid um, for many years. And so we're, they were able to um, provide us access to their, their data of therapeutic drug monitoring of linazolid to allow us to to do some POP-BK modeling of those clinical data and assess, do we see this association with renal function and the clearance of linazolid, and then can we use the, the model based on those clinical data to um, perform simulations to help inform um, potential dose adjustments in this population that could be informed by TDM. So getting into the, the study proper, in, in part one of the study, it was a retrospective cohort analysis um, using an electronic um, clinical database at the University of Michigan. Um, we included all adult patients over the, the study period who received linazolid, either um, intravenously or orally. Um, and we excluded patients that had severe neutropenia or, or low hemoglobin at baseline, um, hepatic impairment, um, or who were missing uh, any of our covariate information needed to calculate um, our renal function measures, as well as those that received less than 10 days of linazolid therapy or didn't have a platelet count follow-up after day 10. For this analysis, we used um, time-to-event or survival analysis um, with Cox proportional hazard model. Um, we defined an event as a platelet count um, less than 0.75 times the lower limit of normal or be about 112.5 thousand per microliter. Or if the subject had uh, platelets above the lower limit normal at baseline, or just a 25% reduction from the baseline value if they were below that limit. We ended up including 341 patients with the over, or with the majority of them, 66% uh, in the ICU at some point during their stay. We stratified then the subjects um, into two groups based on presence of renal impairment, which was 
um, less than 60 mils per minute, um, or absence of renal impairment greater than that value. Um, and then we performed uh, a multivariable um, COX-PH model to control for things like body size, um, Charleston comorbidity index, baseline count, and baseline uh, liver function, which was assessed with total bilirubin. Um, and so that ended up finding a 2.4-fold uh, increase in the hazard, so the adjusted hazard ratio for thrombocytopenia in patients with renal impairment compared to those that did not have renal impairment. And so um, certainly these observational data would suggest that these subjects may be at an increased risk for thrombocytopenia during treatment with linazolid than subjects who don't have renal impairment. And so that kind of aligned with, with our hypotheses um, for the study. And then in the, so the second part, um, the POP-DK analysis, we uh, just did a, a standard assessment of one and two compartment structural models um, with linear elimination given the peak and trough or sparse sampling for um, routine TDM. Um, this hospital did include both peak and trough concentrations for some subjects. Um, we did exclude subjects who were on renal replacement therapy um, and performed a uh, stepwise covariate analysis to identify factors associated with uh, linazolid pharmacokinetics. The resulting model was um, unsurprisingly one compartment given just peak and trough available to us and had uh, influence of body size on both clearance and volume and then renal impairment on clearance. Because renal impairment, or sorry, renal function was identified as a covariate of um, clearance, we performed simulations with different um, renal functions to evaluate um, the probability of um, subjects being within that therapeutic index, which we defined as a, a linazolid trough concentration between two and eight milligrams per liter. And so what we found in that simulation analysis is that um, for subjects with uh, normal or uh, augmented renal function, the, the standard recommended dose of, of 600Q12 is likely uh, reasonable, although if renal function is very augmented, the simulations would suggest you could consider increasing to um, a, a Q8 regimen, although um, that would be need more uh, assessment. For the renal impairment group less than 60, um, the simulations would suggest that half the dose um, at a 300Q12 um, interval would be uh, more likely to maximize the time in that therapeutic range. And so our, our takeaways from, from this um, is, is that, you know, like many other authors, we identified renal function as a covariate of linazolid clearance, um, which aligns with, with the knowledge um, since the initial approval of linazolid. Um, we found that renal function is associated with, a renal impairment rather, is associated with approximately a two-fold increase in risk of thrombocytopenia events. Um, and this risk is likely due to increased exposure, although we can't uh, definitively conclude that. The, the simulations, at least based on the POP-DK model, would suggest that reduced uh, doses of linazolid and renal impairment at the population level are, are likely to improve safety um, without compromising efficacy in that population. And so this kind of to bring it all together for the, the clinical recommendation that we make in the paper is that when thinking about therapeutic drug monitoring or, or patients that may benefit from alternative dose regimens for linazolid, 
um, because again, we're, we're focusing on that ceiling of our therapeutic index, which is toxicity. We should really be considering this for our, our lowest hanging fruit, you know, patient population. And it seems like patients with renal impairment um, are likely to be at higher risk. Um, and of course, the other work um, has suggested that these myelosuppressive toxicities occur more commonly when therapies are, are longer duration. So really beyond your standard 10 to 14 day course, more into the, the 28 day, more deep seated infection durations. And so our, our recommendation is really to um, consider therapeutic drug monitoring and dose individualization for patients with renal impairment that are planned to be on a, a longer course of therapy. I think that's a really nice comprehensive summary of, of, of the study. And you know, as Ryan said, and I summarize that I think several groups have demonstrated that patients with chronic kidney disease are at higher risk for this toxicity. And I think we were able to identify the same thing. It's two to three times higher in that population. Uh, I think another, just to add another key point is, you know, the between subject variability that Ryan found in his analysis of, um, in his population PK analysis was around 68%. And uh, what he, what we included in that publication is a really detailed supplemental file that kind of outlines the entire model development and structure. And what you'll see through that analysis is that he was able to reduce the between subject variability from 68% to 80 to 50%, which, you know, again, seems like a small shift, but is a significant one in, in population PK modeling. However, even with attributing kidney function to that, we still have a lot of between subject variability that we're not accounting for. And what that means is that, again, patients with chronic kidney disease are at risk for this, but even with that dose modification that might be suggested in that population, you potentially still need therapeutic drug monitoring to ensure that you're getting the right dose. So I think that's another key message that uh, I want to relay. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for that information. And I think um, we're starting to hear dose individualization repeated as a theme, uh, and I'm sure we'll continue that. All right, so another patient population I want to talk about uh, is patients who are overweight and obese. Um, Amit, you were part of a study published in Clinical Pharmacokinetics in 2018 that examined population PK and dosing considerations um, in this patient population. Uh, so what can you share with us about performing linazolid TDM in these folks? Sure. So, you know, I think first all, you know, I think when you think about patients with obesity, there's a general expectation that patients with extreme obesity need a higher dose. Um, but what that higher dose should be in terms of an actual number is really the challenge, especially when you're dealing with a compound that's limited by its formulation, because it's only available as a 600 milligram tablet and in uh, a suspension form, which is really not a cost-effective way of administration in adults. It really presents a challenge. So often the question for clinicians is if we're starting off at 600 milligrams every 12 hours and we're thinking about an obese patient, should we go to 600 milligrams every eight hours? That's, I think that's the question that a lot of people ask. Uh, so as mentioned uh, by Ryan with the former study, that this work uh, that was published was also in collaboration with Dr. Federico Pia, who uh, is now actually at the University of Bologna. The key principle, the rationale for working with that group is that 
that group again has have been the champions for therapeutic drug monitoring for uh, for a long period of time, and uh, have helped generate the necessary data to get some of the conclusions that we have. In that study, we evaluated 112 patients. Um, were really predominantly older obese individuals, which is an important point because they were between 57 and 72 years of age. And the reason that's relevant is because the profile in younger obese patients may be different, and we didn't really address that in that study. Uh, most of the patients in that study were in obese class one and class two. So what that means is individuals that have a body mass index less than 40 kilogram per meter squared were the kind of the predominant population. We didn't have a lot of morbidly obese patients in that population. And in general, most of those individuals were between 90 and 130 kilograms in, in body weight. We used, uh, again, a population PK modeling approach, but we used a non-parametric population PK modeling approach. And that distinction is uh, made just because the study that Ryan had mentioned was more of the parametric population PK modeling approach using non-MEM. We used uh, P-metrics for this modeling approach. And again, the reason I bring this up is because when a non-parametric approach is used, it's, it's, it tends to be more difficult to identify covariates uh, of PK parameters uh, relative to using that, that methodology. But doing that, uh, we did not identify body weight as a significant predictor of uh, the pharmacokinetic profile of linazolid, but what we did find is that, again, kidney function was the primary predictor of uh, the clearance of, of that compound. And specifically in this scenario, we tested different kidney function equations that exist out there, and we found that the EGFR or, or uh, estimated glomerular filtration rate using the CKD epi equation was the, the model that best predicted the uh, interindividual variability in clearance. Now, using a, a threshold of the tox value of about eight milligram per liter as being a concern for trough concentrations exceeding that value, we found in that, in that study, which was obviously published before the one uh, Ryan mentioned, uh, a, an EGFR less than 30. In, the, in that population having a three to four times higher probability of having that exposure profile that may contribute to toxicity. Uh, but the key thing that we found in that study was that we didn't, uh, based on the simulations that we ran, uh, we found that, that the probability of toxicity using a 600 milligram dose every eight hours uh, may, be, may be too high for, uh, for this compound. And that if considerations being given, maybe a 450 milligram uh, every eight hour regimen might be reasonable in some patients. But again, the challenge um, is how do you implement that? And I think as we talk more uh, on this cast today uh, is getting into how do you actually do that when you don't have a formulation to do it. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I know that the the question about using 600 milligrams every eight hours has certainly come up in clinical practice um, and, you know, balancing the concerns with ensuring the patient has adequate exposure with potential toxicity and then navigating the challenges of, of the available formulation, as you mentioned, um, is a, a conundrum that I've been stuck in myself. 
that transitions us beautifully into uh, the when, where, and how. So um, thinking about logistics, um, I think we we can agree that there is benefit to performing TDM uh, for linazolid, especially in certain patient populations, but sometimes those logistics can, can be a barrier. Um, so what can the two of you tell us about um, the actual bedside process of performing this um, and actually using it to make decisions for an individualized patient? Sure. So, you know, I, I, again, have received this question many a times from clinicians around the country, but, um, but I just want to go off by saying that, that we do not routinely do therapeutic drug monitoring uh, for linazolid at the University of Michigan. Obviously, we have sent out samples for select patients on a case-by-case basis, but it's not something that we do routinely, which is very different from the case scenario in Italy with our collaborators and actually several investigators that we've had conversations with who uh, work in Japan, for example, where this is much more routine. Uh, in the United States, I think there's, there's quite a few laboratories that do therapeutic drug monitoring for linazolid where samples could be sent out to. And I'm just gonna name a few just that come off the top of my head, which are uh, the Infectious Diseases PK Laboratory uh, in Florida. Atlantic Diagnostics Laboratory uh, is another one um, that's, I think, based in Pennsylvania. And then there's National Jewish Health Center in, uh, in Colorado, and then Seattle Children's Hospital on the West Coast are examples of some laboratories that clinicians can reach out to, and they have a, a process by which you can submit samples. Now, each of those labs are going to have different turnaround times, and if you look at that sort of detail, the turnaround is anywhere from a day to up to 10 days. So obviously that has to be taken into account when you're trying to make a decision for a patient. Uh, if you're managing uh, XDR, MDR, TB, obviously you're probably more accepting of a longer time frame. But if you're dealing with a bacterial infection, you may have a shorter uh, decision time frame. Again, I recommend that users kind of check the specific requirements for sample collection. But in general, when you're thinking about linazolid, most of the sample collections are based on collection of a red top, uh, which is, means no additives to that, which means that when you centrifuge it, you're going to get a serum uh, sample. Typically, you need about 0.25 or 1 ml of that serum to be shipped. It's stable under refrigerated conditions for about a week. And why that's relevant is on occasion, you may have a sample collection on a Friday, for example, and then you have to have that stored in the fridge uh, until Monday until you can get it in a freezer. And that's, that's a reasonable option uh, for this compound. Uh, it does have to be shipped on, on dry ice to whatever lab you're going to send it to. Um, now, in terms of sample collection, obviously, the ideal is to try and get a peak and trough. But again, that's complex to do and expensive to do potentially. And so at the minimum, getting a trough concentration is, is sufficient because there's been enough correlation in the literature that supports that the trough is a pretty good reflection of the AUC. And there's been just direct target values where at, above a certain trough predicts myelosuppression. Typically, this is collected at least after around the third day of dosing uh, because you anticipate at least seven plus doses by that point. So that's when you can get that sample measurement. If you do decide to get a trough, obviously that's going to be right around the uh, before a dose is administered, typically. So within 30 minutes of that, uh, if it's a peak concentration that you're also going to collect, then that is typically going to be 30 minutes after a one-hour infusion of the compound, or two hours after oral administration of the drug. So that's kind of 
you know, a lot of details that I'm providing you. But again, I think some of this you can see in the literature. Uh, and then some of this information you may get directly by contacting the lab that's receiving the sample. I think that's a great um, summary of kind of the process of, of what in, is entailed for Linaeusoid TDM. I guess I can add a little bit uh, of consideration for what to do with that result um, when you get it back. Um, as, as Amit pointed out, I think most likely um, it, it's going to be just a trough sample in most instances. And that's what's been most studied in the, the literature, again, with that, that range of um, of two to eight as kind of the, the therapeutic range that's, that's been most studied. Um, as I kind of touched on in the beginning, there, there's some question in, in Linazolid PK about whether it's truly a, a linear um, compound or also has a, a nonlinear component to um, elimination such that if we make uh, dose adjustments based on the assumptions of linearity, whether or not that would cause any problems where we'd be greater than some linear increases in exposure. I think most of the, the clinical data that we have um, at this time would suggest that you probably are reasonably safe making linear assumptions and adjusting your, your dose um, to achieve your, your trough target um, in that manner. So, you know, if you have a, a, a trough that's above your range, um, you can kind of make a, a proportional um, dose adjustment to get back into that range. Um, thinking about practical dose adjustments with our existing tablet formulation, um, it's a little more challenging because, of course, if you're stuck with 600 milligram uh, tablets that are not really scored and not really meant to be divided and then expensive suspension, um, you may want to stick with the, the tablet option. Um, and so, you know, the the you may see more than of a reduction in the trough, you know, going from a 600 BID to 600 once daily than if it was to, you know, if you made a dose adjustment like our simulations suggested, I believe, which was 300 every 12 hours. Then you have a, your your linear to linear comparison of trough, where if you're changing your frequency, you'll see a greater impact on on the trough concentration. Um, so something also to consider. I think there's more work to be done on evaluating, you know, what kind of practical dose adjustments people can can really do given the formulations available in most cases. I think I speak for most of our listeners when I say thank you both so much for reviewing those logistics. Um, I think that sometimes that's the the part that trips us up again, applying this to individualized patients. So I think that folks will really appreciate um, taking the time to go through those those uh, specific tips and tricks. All right. So before we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to give the both of you one more opportunity to impart any last minute wisdom. Uh, what do you think every ID clinician should know or remember when performing linazolid TDM? I think the, the thing that everyone should remember when, when considering um, TDM, I think with any new compound that is not you know, routinely monitored or measured at your institution, you know, if you have the opportunity to do it is to not just get overzealous with, with the shiny new toy of, of dose individualization. And I think that's really the, the recommendation that we wanted to make clear from, from our um, repraisal paper. And, and just saying, we really need to, to do the work to demonstrate um, the benefit of, of TDM with linazolid. And so 
in the vast majority of patients because the, the toxicities that we're trying to prevent here, um, these myelotoxicities of thrombocytopenia um, and um, anemia and the, the mitochondrial toxicities of some of the neuropathies, um, they really mostly occur with, with prolonged treatment. And, you know, again, we've, we've learned a lot from extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis and its use in, in that setting, in which it's dosed much less frequently. Um, but I think we, we really want to, to do our best to identify the patients most likely to benefit from this, which um, are those with risk factors for overexposure, um, which the biggest one identified for linazolid is um, impaired renal function. Um, and those that are going to be on treatment long enough that we'll see potentially some of the toxicities um, that occur with long-term use. So again, really focusing initially on um, those patients that are, are most at risk and are going to be getting long enough treatment in which this is a, a real concern. Um, and I think the other thing that I just wanted to highlight um, related to the point that Amit made earlier about the, the variability that we see between um, subjects is also to remember that, and this has been pointed out in, in many other settings for, for therapeutic drug monitoring for um, antibiotics eliminated, at least in part by the kidney, is that remember that these renal estimation equations that we base our decisions on are also themselves models that are associated with variability. Um, and so when you're seeing these, these GFRs that we're putting in these population models and, and projecting these dosing regimens for, where are, based on the best models, which CKD-EPI is probably the best one we have now, you're still at best um, within, you know, plus or minus 30 mils per minute um, at when thinking about that equation. And so just highlighting the potential benefit, I guess, also in this population is that we may not know um, exactly what their renal function is. And so it's tough to make a recommendation just from the population level from these population models um, without actually um, monitoring therapy. The only thing I would add to this is obviously we, we, we've focused a lot on, on this topic, thinking from the angle of adults. Again, you know, I think uh, some of the spaces where we have very, even less information is in, in children. Uh, and uh, the acceptance of ideas of using therapeutic drug monitoring sometimes are, are, are more informed or used more in, in, in children, especially when we're thinking about formulations. I think, sadly, we almost never have the right formulation for use in pediatric patients. And so application of TDM uh, could potentially be more relevant also in that subpopulation, hasn't been studied well enough yet, but this ability of trying to use other formulations or splitting tablets or thinking about what the palatability of that would be if you did that uh, has been evaluated in the literature. Uh, I think we just need more of that uh, kind of granularity to help us do this translation. But I think the case example in the literature has been obviously when we have applied TDM, again, as a general principle, it has helped us improve the dosing of whatever compound we've, we've worked on. And I think that's what TDM offers. TDM offers this ability in a sense, uh, again, to help gain some of that scientific knowledge that we need to identify uh, the right dose. So it's, it's, a, it's a long horizon often for a compound to get to that answer. And I think it's really the willingness of certain key groups early on, early adopters in a way, 
who helped kind of pave the way to help answer this question. Um, so again, as Ryan mentioned, it may not be there prime time for every situation, but certainly in patients with chronic kidney disease, I think it's a pretty solid case that we should be doing more work in that space. It sounds like uh, some TDM stewardship, if you will. So diagnostic stewardship, being wise with who we're obtaining levels in and making sure um, that we have a plan for when that level comes back with what we're going to do with it. I love it. All right. Uh, so last but certainly not least, we will pivot to our segment called I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. I'm hearing that today's edition may be the nerdiest. I feel nerdy and I cannot wait. Uh, so for today's question, I would love to know your favorite myth to dispel about linazolid. Okay, so I always feel nerdy. So this is, this is a great segment for me. I came across a paper this year that just finally just, you know, just got me so excited about linazolid in a sense that, you know, for the last 20 plus years uh, before this compound even hit the market as we were thinking about this compound has been this issue of its metabolism. There's a lot of informational literature suggesting that it had a non-enzymatic metabolic pathway primarily because again, when we think about linazolid, linazolid is a completely synthetic molecule. There is no uh, similar compound in nature. So it's completely synthetic. Um, and so there's just been a general acceptance of this idea that that, that metabolism happens non-enzymatically because again, it doesn't exist. Uh, earlier this year, a paper by Scott Obach, um, who's a pharmacologist now, at Pfizer uh, finally unraveled the, the metabolism of this pathway. And so what he did in a paper in drug metabolism and disposition is demonstrate that the, the, me the mechanism of metabolism for linazolid is actually driven by CYP2J2. So that's a very sort of like, you know, esoteric enzyme pathway that's not really responsible for uh, metabolism of many, many compounds. But uh, the reason we were not able to discover this pathway is that when we're thinking about drug metabolism PK assays, most of that work is done by using liver microsomes. And only 1% of that protein content is actually 2J2. So this is the reason why we've kept failing in our methods trying to figure out how this compound is metabolized. And so his work by using a recombinant pathway and then using in specific inhibitors of these isoenzymes, he was able to decipher again, confirmatively in a confirmed way that confirmed that 2J2 and 4F2 are the primary pathways of uh, linazolid's metabolism to its primary metabolite. So I thought that's like a really nerdy fact, doesn't really change how we dose this drug, isn't as really associated with a lot of specific drug interactions, but um, really helpful to finally uh, kill that myth. Yeah, I think that's a much more interesting fact, at least for us type of nerds um, than, than mine. But I think it's, it's, it's really interesting, especially since we didn't really talk much about the metabolites of linazolid today, other than just, you know, mentioning that they exist and that they're not active against bacteria. Um, but those do accumulate a lot more than parent linazolid in, in renal impairment. And so it's possible that those, although not active against bacteria, do have some 
um, influence on the, the myelotoxicities or the mitochondrial toxicities. And so it could be at least in part um, contributing to this increased risk with, with renal impairment. Um, so it, yeah, from a, from a med chem metabolism DMPK standpoint, excited to, to finally have an idea of, of how they're metabolized, but also to learn about some new SIP enzymes that I didn't know existed. Yes, I think mention of CYP2J2 might take the cake. Uh, I'm feeling very inferior in my feeling nerdy over here, but I think uh, my favorite myth to dispel is anytime serotonin syndrome occurs or, or you know, the concern, I should say, for serotonin syndrome uh, comes up being able to, to walk uh, teams and clinicians through the fact uh, that perhaps we worry about it a lot more often than we we perhaps should, uh, like the paper from Dr. Traver and colleagues recently looking at methadone um, and buprenorphine as well. So uh, definitely an inferior, I feel nerdy fact. So thank you. Yeah, I have, I guess I can't, I just kind of piggybacked on, on it. So I'll try to share my, um, my own as well. But um, mine is also, I guess, more clinically focused and something I just came across in, in the literature once. But um, Surprisingly, linazolid actually has decent anaerobic activity. Um, it's not something we usually think about um, with linazolid, but, um, and I don't know exactly what the clinical implications are, if anyone would ever feel comfortable in like an, you know, intra-abdominal infection in which you have VRE and you're worried about anaerobes of just using linazolid um, only. Um, but it, it's interesting that it has some of this activity and not only against um, gram positive anaerobes, but also against gram negative anaerobes like bacteroides. So it's something I was surprised to come across in, in the literature. I agree. I look forward to, to hopefully experiencing a situation with an intra-abdominal infection where maybe we'll get to put that to the test. You just never know. I can't thank both of you enough for joining us on this episode of Breakpoints. Uh, I know I have felt like a sponge sitting here, soaking all of this in, uh, definitely learned some things and I'll be on the lookout for ways to put this uh, information to use in patients uh, who may be a good candidate for linazolid TDM. Uh, so thank you again, both so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jillian. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Jillian. Always excited to, to come on and talk about uh, PK, PKPD and TDM, some of my favorite topics. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. Uh, I have been your host, Jillian Hayes, and our featured speakers have been Ryan Crass and Amit Pai. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by myself and Rachel Britt. It was edited by Wayana Bruck and peer-reviewed by Zach Nelson and Chris Baladad. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafant, and the executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke, and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.